This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Last year, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said countries have to make drastic moves to combat climate change within the next decade or so, where the planet faces dire consequences. This includes rising sea levels, drought, more damaging storms, coral reefs dying, and famine, among other things. The U.S. is the world's second largest polluter, and the Trump administration has largely reversed course on moves made by the Obama administration to combat this issue. So what are the solutions? Uh, are, that are feasible to deal with climate change. Well, over the summer, the, United, uh, the uh, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Risk Center, the Climate Center for Energy Policy, the Penn Program on Regulation, and the Faculty Senate collaborated to look at policy-relevant and solution-oriented ideas. These are strategies that can be applied at the local, state, and national level to tackle this. The session came up with 30 proposals on everything from rethinking our system of highways to planting trees strategically and wisely to reducing water and security, among other uh, among other areas. To discuss these proposals, we're joined here in studio by uh, Carolyn Kuski, who is a director of policy research and engagement at the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Carrie Colianisi, who is a law professor and political science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the program of the Penn Program on Regulation. And Stephen Kimbrough, who is a professor of operations, information and decisions here at the Wharton School. Welcome to you all. Good to see you. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, Carolyn, I guess let's start with a with an overall larger perspective here. How did we come up with this idea in the first place and kind of look at these 30 areas? Yeah, so at the Risk Center, we've long been thinking about climate change as a risk management problem. And part of why it's tricky is it's actually not just one risk management problem. It's dozens, hundreds of risk management problems. And in consultation with these other groups, we began thinking about these as falling into the sort of three big buckets where climate policy is needed. So the first is mitigation. How do we reduce emissions rapidly enough to minimize the risks of catastrophic shifts in the Earth's system? The second is adaptation. How do we reduce the risks of physical impacts from all the things you mentioned, changing extreme events, sea level rise, and so forth, to minimize those costs to households, communities, and businesses? And then the third is, as we transition our economy away from fossil fuels, how do we minimize the risk of those changes in the economy to Mm -hmm. businesses and communities? So we reached out to scholars across the university to propose solutions in any of those buckets. And we were quite delighted with the range of things we got. And I think it shows how there's a lot of research that's been done here that can be brought to bear to inform these issues. This initiative really does showcase the strengths in in the university. Uh, The University of Pennsylvania has the foremost researchers on energy policy, on business, on regulation and law, international law and policy. Uh, and I, I really uh, have my, take my hat off to Carolyn and, and for initiating this, and uh, to the other uh, organizations around campus that have have spearheaded this effort because it uh, really adds important new ideas to the policy mix. As Carolyn said, climate change is one big problem, but it's also many dozens of hundreds of of problems at all levels of social and economic activity. 
And a great university like the University of Pennsylvania is just really positioned very well to speak to all of those dimensions of the climate change problem and its solutions. Stephen, so from your perspective, how do you view the importance of, of a project like this really looking at climate risk? Well, I think it's hugely important, and I'd like to um, make that point by amplifying something that Carolyn uh, just said. There's this kind of high-level um, framework of mitigation, adaptation, and transition that uh, is widely accepted and is quite correct. But I think that perhaps in the, it's in the transition area that this project is most significant. Uh, part of what um, a community like, such as Penn is about, part of what it does, it's a laboratory for living, of figuring out new ways of living that uh, adapt us to the world better. So Penn is very strong on wellness and health, very strong on matters of race, gender, ethnicity, and so forth, and leading the way for living better. And, and now the whole world faces a challenge of transitioning and developing a flourishing culture under the changes that are coming and under the new economic regimes that will be enforced by um, climate change. So I think that this particular project is exemplary mm -hmm. in, in furthering that dialogue and bringing it to people's attention. I found it interesting, Carrie, in, in, in one of the pieces that you did for this, you called the, th this process conceptually easy. A and I think you're right that, that you know it's one thing to come up with the concepts. It's another thing to have the follow through and, and, and have the change occur. That's right. I mean, I think uh, once you identify the human sources of climate change, or at least the acceleration of climate change as the introduction of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, then yes, conceptually, it's easy. Get rid of the sources of the problem. But uh, the sources of the problem in this case is each one of us, ultimately. Yeah. And by us, I mean the global community. This is what I also call in my contribution to the conclusion of this series, a collective action problem on steroids. Uh, collective action problems occur all the time in society, and we need legal institutions to help uh, help get people to do what's for the good of the whole, even yeah. though it's not always in each individual self-interest. And that's what this problem fundamentally, conceptually is. But what makes it so challenging is it's worldwide, and there aren't global institutions that can readily come into play and correct those uh, those market failures that are occurring here on steroids. Well, Carolyn, when you have a project like this and you have all of these areas, and as you, you both have kind of alluded to, there was there, there tends to be crossover in the end with, with some of these. The goal then and the opportunity, I guess, that you have here is to be able to take a little piece from one bucket and a little piece from another bucket and bring it together and potentially have a have a larger solution. Yeah, I think that's right. And what I think really comes out of seeing this collection of solutions together is that while if you follow a lot of the science and the reporting around climate change, it can feel incredibly daunting. There's just so much that needs to be done and so many challenges with doing it. But what you see when you look across these 30 solutions, in my view, is that that same challenge of so many problems is exactly a source of optimism because there's so many solutions and we can start making changes almost everywhere in every sector at every scale and that was seen in all the different types of solutions that were proposed here. Stephen? Yeah, I want to second that. And I also, let me mention, I'm speaking in part as I'm serving this year as chair of the Faculty Senate, so I'm trying to take a broad uh, view from the faculty's point of view. 
And one thing that's been on my mind is something that I would like to call, it's a widely recognized problem but otherwise unnamed, is the solution matching problem. Okay. And, um, you know, there are people that have problems and there are people that have expertise to solve those problems. How do you match them up? So the problems here are from climate change. How do we identify these the kinds of problems that the experts who really know what they're doing specializing in climate change will identify and how can they be articulated so that interested experts outside of climate change students every, anybody who's interested in contributing can understand that this is what they need to do now a simple example is one of my areas is I do agent-based modeling a form of simulation so can agent-based modeling be used for climate change well it can be if you you know if you look into it but for someone who hasn't looked into it, there's this there's this expertise, and it's and they maybe want to contribute. But how do we get how do we reach that person, right. uh, so that that person can say, oh, I, I see that there's something I can do here, and I think that that's again one of the great virtues of this kind of project, and that's really one of the one of the goals. And I think and we're talking about how to further that as we go along. This is fundamentally a hopeful project. And yeah, I think yeah. the fact that you can go to this website and you can see 30 <laughs> different solutions yeah. to what seems to most people to be an intractable, insolvable problem. And I don't want to under, uh, uh, understate uh, the difficulty of the problem, but nevertheless, it's a, a project that really does convey hope. Well, and, and to give the listeners perspective, I, you, I think there are areas which are normally associated that, that you look at as potential areas to focus on surrounding climate change. In this report, you, uh, Ben Keyes, who is a, a friend of the show from the Wharton Real Estate Department, has an idea about can the federal mortgage finance system help manage climate risk, <laughs> yeah. which is not something that normally you would associate yeah. those two things. But when you think about how the housing sector is such a, an important piece to, to the country and, and where houses are being built, it, it can be a very important piece. Yeah, Howard Chang from the law school has a piece about uh, tariffs and how international yeah. trade policy might be leveraged to help address this. Throughout the whole uh, project, there are these new, fresh ideas that I think are very much needed today. But I mentioned your work with the Penn Program on Regulation, yeah. and obviously regulation and, and the political side of this yeah. will end up playing a role here. Right, and we do have contributions in here to uh, to thinking about the the political problem, or what I call normative change. I think the solution fundamentally to climate change is normative change. We have to reach a point in which a critical mass, a tipping point is reached in which our society here in the U.S. and around the world, people demand of their government attention to this. There's a great piece by my colleague at the law school, Regina Austin, about how images and imagery can help facilitate yep. that that normative change when and she refers back to the images that people saw here in the states on TV following the, the Hurricane Katrina and the devastating flood in in New Orleans uh, about a decade ago and and she says that type of imagery really did shift how people think about environmental justice in the United States and we're going to see more disasters like that unfortunately happening and the imagery around them can be a source of normative change. So to a degree, it, it, and obviously what happened in New Orleans is, is devastating, and that, as you yeah. said, that imagery is, in, is very powerful. But then you think about Houston a couple of years ago, and, and obviously what we have just seen occur in Puerto Rico two years ago, and now the Bahamas, and, yeah. and all of these images. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's a cumulative effect in this as well. I think there might be. I mean, we, we can't ever attribute any individual storm or weather event 
to climate change. I mean, there were obviously severe weather events prior to uh, the the yeah. massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions, for example. But uh, the, the attribution science is advancing rapidly, and we do know that, that the intensity and the frequency of severe storms is a consequence of climate change. And so I think, yes, when these events happen, uh, that is going to serve as a continued wake-up call. This is not a problem that is going to go away or can be swept under the rug. Stephen? Well, very much agree with all of this. But um, besides the normative, uh, what also has to be done is basically convince people that it's too expensive not to move forward, and that right. and they will when they see that they'll change their values as well. So that's that's a, that's, right. a, that's a primary driver on that. So you, I think I see these two prongs working hand in hand as a, to mix a metaphor here. Yeah, <laughs> Mark Nevitt, uh, who's also a contributor to this uh, <laughs> this series, uh, Mark Nevitt and I wrote an op-ed piece earlier this year in which we said the U.S. already has a climate tax. The tax, yeah. though, is the costs of the floods, of the yeah. fires. It's a tax that people are incurring already. It's just distributed randomly and unsensibly and, and, and tragically. And we're also putting it on our children. Yes, that's right. And that's and that's another important piece of this is that it's not just our generation that mm -hmm. that is going to be impacted by this. It'll be my kids generation and, and my grandkids generation moving forward. And to that, it's probably important to point out that we've seen enormous student interest in the topic of climate in the summer program. It's only a couple weeks into the semester and already MBA students here at Wharton are really engaging around climate. And so we hope a follow on on this can be sort of a version for students as well and for right. student involvement. And I think that speaks to the fact that this is the defining challenge for that generation. And they're looking for ways to do something while they're at the university and then in their careers. If I can, I, I, let me touch on one of the areas which, which caught my attention. And infrastructure is part of this. And, and one of the pieces of infrastructure that you talk about is the road systems. I mentioned the highway systems at, at the outset. And obviously the costs associated with replacing roads that, that are destroyed or replacing our roads just in general and our bridges in general are, are continue to go up. With that area specifically, why is it and how do we need to rethink our, our highway system here in the United States? Well, I think it's not just highways in the sense of the physical road structure per se, asphalt and, and the like, but the entire transportation sector. Okay. I mean, I think it's about 20 to 25 percent of emissions, of greenhouse yep. gas emissions in the U.S. are coming from the transportation sector. And so there are enormous opportunities for Wharton students, for engineering students, uh, to start thinking about ways of innovating uh, transportation. And that's going to really require rethinking not only the vehicles and the roads, uh, and maybe we can, with autonomous vehicle systems, uh, have fuel uh, savings. With electric vehicles, obviously, we can, we can start seeing reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. But it also matters to connect with your earlier point about housing, about how land patterns and living patterns yeah. are, are reflecting. There's going to be, uh, here in the U.S., communities that really will probably have to move physically. We're going to have relocations that are d necessitated by climate related effects. We already have flooding on a regular basis in uh, Miami and other parts uh, of our coastal uh, areas in the United States. So we will see some land uh, development and, and, and usage changes, and we should be thinking about the climate impacts in, as we go forward in all of these dimensions related to transportation. Carol? Yeah, I think just building on exactly what Carrie just said, 
if you take a challenge like transportation, you realize that that is so inherently interdisciplinary, which again speaks to bringing in all the parts of the university because it's an engineering question of how we design airplanes that are more fuel efficient. Airplanes are huge emitters of greenhouse gases. It's how do we, you know, go to the design school and think about our land use and things like bike lanes. It's how do we fund and finance high-speed yeah. rail. And so it touches all these areas. Well, and, and it brings up another piece that is one of the ideas that, that you have in this report, and, and it's titled Think Globally, But Act act Locally. And, and that's an important component because a lot of these ideas obviously are, are, are important and they can impact so many different people across so many different countries. But in the end, a lot of this is going to be grassroots efforts to, to, to make some of these changes occur. Uh, indeed. And um, I want to emphasize the, the innovation part that both of the other speakers have, have mentioned as well. And that is um, very much of climate change is often sold or at least charged as painful and difficult. And, you know, we have to, you know, it's be, be very unpleasant. It may well be true, but it's incumbent upon us to be extremely creative and open-minded and figure out new ways of doing things to make the transition as painful, as painless as possible. In many ways, it can possibly be a, a wonderful transit, a positive transition. And there's a lot of mm -hmm. opportunities there. But that requires, in the case of transportation, just very radical rethinking. And from a certain perspective, that's a wonderful thing to be doing. Right. And, and the transportation shifts are only one piece of this uh, energy uh, systems. Right now yep. we have around the world a lot of energy that's being produced by, uh, you know, non-renewable sources that are carbon emitting and are a major contributor to this problem. Uh, but, you know, shifting away from that is going to be very costly and it, we, it's going to require, as Steve said, a lot of innovation. We, we need to, for example, if we're going to take advantage of solar, uh, we've got to find a way to store that power yeah. better when uh, the sun is shining and keep it for the nighttime and, and the times when there's too much cloud cover. So uh, you know, a lot of research right now going forward in, uh, in energy and in the transportation and disruption of the current carbon-based energy system. 844-WHARTON is the number if you would like to join in with a comment or a question. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. By the way, you can see the reporting uh, at the uh, Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. The website, by the way, is riskcenter.wharton.upenn.edu. And if you uh, if you put in climate risk solutions, you'll be able to read all of them. You can actually get there in an easier way okay. by just putting in climateriskSolutions.upenn.edu. Okay, even or just place. Google Wharton <laughs> yeah. Climate even, Risk Solutions. Even better, <laughs> even better. To the phones we go in Pleasanton, California. Alan is on the line. Alan, go ahead. Yes, I just uh, wondered if anyone of the uh, uh, professors had looked at uh, carbon sequestration as a possible business model. Well, I will say that one of the very first uh, entries in this collection of climate risk solutions is by Mark Allen Hughes, who's the director of our Climate Energy Policy Center here at the University of Pennsylvania. And that is one of the primary points that he makes, that the real solution here cannot just depend on reducing emissions, partly because we are so dependent on energy systems that are going to, we're going to have emissions uh, one way or another uh, for a while. We need to think about ways of, of capturing the carbon, uh, either at the source or through forestation or other ways of sequestering, as you say, the carbon. 
Yeah, and we saw that there were contributions both on sort of carbon capture and also the dean of the design school talked about how you can harness the value of trees for carbon sequestration in a way that also promotes all these other benefits in the urban environment, such as reducing the urban heat island effect, minimizing building energy use. So getting back to this earlier discussion that there are ways Mm -hmm. to start solving these problems that aren't just costly, but that produce a range of benefits for people. Alan, thanks very much for the call. Go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. I was going to say, and also implicit in the responses that, that there was a, a series of ideas there, and, and there's ideas beyond what's there, and that we shouldn't think of this um, as a as a single bullet that's going to solve all our problems, sure. but it could be piled up from a lot, lots of small ideas, and they, they matter. Well, one of the other uh, ideas that it's brought up, and it's, again, this is another one of these areas that's drawing attention right now, involves around the carbon tax and the idea of a carbon tax and what would be an effective way to be able to deal with that. Give us a sense of, of what is discussed in that area. Well, I think the biggest obstacle there is political. Anytime you call something a tax, it's almost dead on arrival, right? So I think yeah. a lot of people are now talking about carbon pricing. <laughs> so, yeah. so the rhetoric does matter, but also probably thinking about, well, what happens uh, with that tax will be an issue. But but this is not easy. I mean, the state of Washington has tried a couple of times to adopt a state tax on carbon and this is in a state that is you know not at all on the red end of the political spectrum this is a progressive state overall yeah. and yet uh, the voters there have been very much concerned about uh, the rise in energy. I mean, Iona uh, Marin Eskew of the Social Policy School has a very nice essay about uh, the carbon tax as part of this collection and some of the research that she and others have been doing in terms of uh, focusing on the political barriers to adoption of carbon tax. Karen? Yeah, I think the issue beyond just the carbon tax or carbon pricing is that in a range of sectors, costs are disassociated from benefits, right? And any right. economist will tell you that markets aren't going to work well when you have that. And so, you know, part of the challenge is, yes, broadly internalizing the kind of costs of um, carbon emissions, but you also see that in other levels, too. So we saw contributions on how we can reform the way we pay for disasters, for example, to incentivize more adaptation investments. And so this this line of thinking plays through to other areas as well. Go ahead, Stephen. And I would encourage us to think that the, a carbon price, carbon tax, or whatever, is, is just one side of a coin. The, the basic issue is, can you make it cheaper? Right. Can right. you make the, the alternatives cheaper? And you can do that by making the fossil fuels more expensive and or the, the replacements cheaper. And we need to focus very much on both. Since you, you as you said, you're uh, overseeing the faculty senate this year, uh, what is the hope then of, of, obviously we have all of these different ideas, what is the hope do you have moving forward uh, of taking all these ideas and incorporating them and moving them forward? Well, we're just beginning this, and um, we ha- we did sponsor this uh, particular program. We have a website that tries to collect the main activities um, that are happening at Penn on this, and if anybody uh, shows us a new one, we'll be glad to uh, feature it. And we're uh, designing and planning a number of events and activities that will bring people together and, and communicate, both with students and with faculty. And I would just uh, highlight that in addition to the great work that Steve and the Faculty Senate are doing, there's just a lot of effort on campus happening on a faculty-by-faculty basis. Uh, We see it in some of the collaborations that our 
on that uh, climate risk solutions website. Both yeah. the the whole collection is a collaboration, but there's also co-authored pieces. But we also uh, we also just have a really a very rich uh, network of faculty who are interested in energy issues from the science side, from the policy side, uh, from the from the human dimensions and the implications that it has for society. This is a as Carolyn said before, an interdisciplinary problem, and and we have a tremendous interdisciplinary uh, network of faculty working on this and many other issues at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, I would think, Carolyn, that then one of the next steps, hopefully at some point down the road, is to work and incorporate with the business community in a lot of these areas to be able to bring them on board uh, to advance some of these as well, correct? Yeah, exactly. We'd like to, I think, essentially have three audiences here, right? One is developing these collaborations within the university so that the school can continue to help push forward with important climate solutions. The second is to inform public policy and the necessary changes at all scales of government. And the third, like you mentioned, is to work closely with the private sector. And that's something we try to do at the Risk Center and Morton does more broadly. And a shout out to Eric Ortz's contribution yes, exactly. in, this, uh, in this series about how business needs to get on board the sustainability train. I think we should view this as a tremendous opportunity in this regard for Penn, for Penn to be to make further, co- deeper connections with the broader communities, both locally and around the world, whether right. they're business, whether they're public, whether they're private, whatever, and to provide opportunities for our students to actually help people and to do really systematic, careful listening from abroad that is outside of the campus uh, on the problems that are really important to people because it's going to be non-obvious on these millions of little ideas. We need to listen better, and it's a great opportunity will be strengthened by it. And again, the website where people can check out this full report at all of these 30 ideas, climateriskSolutions.upen.edu. You can go there and it has the entire list of, of 30 ideas there. And uh, obviously, as uh, Stephen mentioned, uh, any further solutions or ideas are certainly more than welcome to be uh, to be passed along. Thank you all for your work and thank you for coming in. Good to be here. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much. You. Thank you. Great having you all. Carolyn Kuski, Kerry Kolonisi, and Stephen Kimbrough. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 